The Christian Religion by Robert Greene Ingersoll Introduction England is now for the first time offering to the toiling portion of its people a fair modicum of the education which was in old time the exclusive privilege of the rich. In doing so it has acted with a keen eye to self-preservation, for the history of every fallen nation shows that the unaided ignorance of the masses has been a principal and fatal element in its downfall. This truth would seem to be not yet fully realized by all of higher education in the country. For the teaching that many of them counsel for the poor is clogged with ignorance, and clouded with error from which their own higher culture has long been free. It is distressing to see men who no longer regard the Bible as anything more than a curious and interesting record, a compound of reflections of ancient myths and poetry, commingled with a considerable amount of fabulous history and absurd theology. To see any such man still arguing that for the poor and for the young it is a necessary subject of study, and for them, a useful article of belief. Do those who argue thus deem the light of reason too clear, too pure, too delightful, for mankind at large? Or is it that they trust that the useful ignorance of the workers will continue to supply them with unmerited or unworthy luxuries? In either case can the position endure. The refinement of Rome might loftily echo. But Rome has herself fallen, and not on the portals of future science or of humanity shall any such motto be written. Freedom of knowledge is the corollary to freedom of thought. In the society of the future no hierarchy or oligarchy of intellect will close its doors upon the masses. None will find delight in either sensuous or intellectual pleasure obtained at the cost of the baser condition of others. The following reprint will be found a clear exposition of the incongruities of creed and record and dogma taught to the poor as a system of ethics for the whole of their life, and held as a convenient thing up to a certain age for the young and especially the female young, of the moneyed classes. It is time that such warfare as this should be aggressive, that such books as the present should be part of the food of our children. Our truest feelings and our tenderest years have been enslaved to blind faith, unreasoning credulity and degrading fear. Our infant lips have been trained to link in loving accents the gentle and holy names of mother and of father with that of a god of jealousy, of vengeance, and brutality. Our growing mind has been warned to look to a Hebrew ascetic as the noblest type of the divine, and to a Hebrew profligate and murderer as the highest type of the human. As the opening thought of youth has striven to turn to the light of reason, it has been constantly threatened back and thrust back into the dark of superstition. It has been told that eternal misery is the doom of those who leave the paths of dogma, and it has been falsely and persistently taught that free thinkers are evil and unclean, men without care for right scoffers at every good thing. But it is not scoffers who wage this war of the rational against the supernatural. Let none deceive themselves with that vain thought, or perpetuate the incorrect assertion. Of such books as the present, such writings as the present, some at least are the words of men and women who have been born to, and striven toward a godly life, with intense effort, with groanings not to be uttered, who, nursed in the bosom of the church, and partakers in all her most sacred ordinances, crush down as unholy the first and the repeated breathings of doubt and of reasoning their minds, who held to the falseness of their early teachings, till there came that final struggle, when they wrestled with God to hold him, not to lose him, gasping with fevered lips and shut teeth and scalding eyelids. I will not let thee go! And who won a blessing they knew not of in that they proved the Jehovah of Hebraism, the God of Christianity, to be an Apollyon of superstition, who cast him off in disgust, 
in loathing, in half-despair, who lay faint and bleeding through a night of darkness, but to whom, with the dawn, has come the free and bracing air of reason, and then the deep warm glow of true life, and humanity, and universal love, love given this time not to a fetish, but to every fellow being, to man and beast, to tree and moss, to stone and star. With a great price obtained we this freedom, and we will that our sons and that our daughters be free-born. To such a liberator as Robert G., Ingersoll the thanks of present parents are lovingly offered. His name will be cherished by our children, and his memory hallowed in the gratitude of generations yet unborn. B. Rudyard. Ninth Month, 1881. Bokeh The Christian Religion. I. A profound change has taken place in the world of thought. The pews are trying to set themselves somewhat above the pulpit. The layman discusses theology with the minister and smiles. Christians excuse themselves for belonging to the church by denying a part of the creed. The idea is abroad that they who know the most of nature believe the least about theology. The sciences are regarded as infidels and facts as scoffers. Thousands of most excellent people avoid churches, and with few exceptions, only those attend prayer meetings who wish to be alone. The pulpit is losing because the people are growing. Of course it is still claimed that we are a Christian people, indebted to something called Christianity for all the progress we have made. There is still a vast difference of opinion as to what Christianity really is, although many warring sects have been discussing that question, with fire and sword, through centuries of creed and crime. Every new sect has been denounced at its birth as illegitimate, as a something born out of orthodox wedlock and that should have been allowed to perish on the steps where it was found. Of the relative merits of the various denominations, it is sufficient to say that each claims to be right among the evangelical churches there is a substantial agreement upon what they consider the fundamental truths of the gospel. These fundamental truths, as I understand them, are that there is a personal God, the creator of the material universe, that he made man of the dust and woman from part of the man, that the man and woman were tempted by the devil, that they were turned out of the garden of Aden, that, about fifteen hundred years afterward, God's patience having been exhausted by the wickedness of mankind, he drowned his children with the exception of eight persons. That afterward he selected from their descendants Abraham, and through him the Jewish people. That he gave laws to these people, and tried to govern them in all things. That he made known his will in many ways. That he wrought a vast number of miracles. That he inspired men to write the Bible. That, in the fullness of time, it having been found impossible to reform man, this God came upon earth as a child born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived in Palestine, that he preached for about three years, going from place to place, occasionally raising the dead, curing the blind and the halt, that he was crucified for the crime of blasphemy, as the Jews supposed, but that, as a matter of fact, he was offered as a sacrifice for the sins of all who might have faith in him, that he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven where he now is, making intercession for his followers, that he will forgive the sins of all who believe on him, and that those who do not believe will be consigned to the dungeons of eternal pain. These, it may be with the addition of the sacraments of baptism and the Last Supper, constitute what is generally known as the Christian religion. It is most cheerfully admitted that a vast number of people not only believe these things, but hold them in exceeding reverence and imagine them to be of the utmost importance to mankind. 
They regard the Bible as the only light that God has given for the guidance of his children, that it is the one star in nature's sky, the foundation of all morality, of all law, of all order, and of all individual and national progress. They regard it as the only means we have for ascertaining the will of God, the origin of man, and the destiny of the soul. It is needless to inquire into the causes that have led so many people to believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. In my opinion, they were and are mistaken, and the mistake has hindered, in countless ways, the civilization of man. The Bible has been the fortress and defense of nearly every crime. No civilized country could reenact its laws, and in many respects its moral code is abhorrent to every good and tender man. It is admitted that many of its precepts are pure, that many of its laws are wise and just, and that many of its statements are absolutely true. Without desiring to hurt the feelings of anybody, I propose to give a few reasons for thinking that a few passages, at least, in the Old Testament are the product of a barbarous people. In all civilized countries it is not only admitted, but it is passionately asserted, that slavery is and always was a hideous crime, that a war of conquest is simply murder, that polygamy is the enslavement of woman, the degradation of man, and the destruction of home, that nothing is more infamous than the slaughter of decrepit men, of helpless women, and of prattling babes, that captured maidens should not be given to soldiers, that wives should not be stoned to death on account of their religious opinions, and that the death penalty ought not to be inflicted for a violation of the Sabbath. We know that there was a time, in the history of almost every nation, when slavery, polygamy, and wars of extermination were regarded as divine institutions, when women were looked upon as beasts of burden, and when, among some people, it was considered the duty of the husband to murder the wife for differing with him on the subject of religion. Nations that entertain these views today are regarded as savage, and probably, with the exception of the South Sea Islanders, the Fijis, some citizens of Delaware, and a few tribes in Central Africa, no human beings can be found degraded enough to agree upon these subjects with the Jehovah of the ancient Jews. The only evidence we have, or can have, that a nation has ceased to be savage is the fact that it has abandoned these doctrines. To everyone, except the theologian, it is perfectly easy to account for the mistakes, atrocities, and crimes of the past by saying that civilization is a slow and painful growth, that the moral perceptions are cultivated through ages of tyranny, of want, of crime, and of heroism, that it requires centuries for man to put out the eyes of self and hold in lofty and in equal poise the scales of justice. That conscience is born of suffering, that mercy is the child of the imagination, of the power to put oneself in the sufferer's place, and that man advances only as he becomes acquainted with his surroundings, with the mutual obligations of life, and learns to take advantage of the forces of nature. But the believer in the inspiration of the Bible is compelled to declare that there was a time when slavery was right, when men could buy, and women could sell, their babes. He is compelled to insist that there was a time when polygamy was the highest form of virtue, when wars of extermination were waged with the sword of mercy, when religious toleration was a crime, and when death was the just penalty for having expressed an honest thought. He must maintain that Jehovah is just as bad now as he was four thousand years ago, or that he was just as good then as he is now, but that human conditions have so changed that slavery, polygamy, religious persecutions, and wars of conquest are now perfectly devilish. Once they were right, 
once they were commanded by God himself, now they are prohibited. There has been such a change in the conditions of man that, at the present time, the devil is in favor of slavery, polygamy, religious persecution, and wars of conquest. That is to say, the devil entertains the same opinion today that Jehovah held four thousand years ago, but in the meantime Jehovah has remained exactly the same, changeless and incapable of change. We find that other nations beside the Jews had similar laws and ideas, that they believed in and practiced slavery and polygamy, murdered women and children, and exterminated their neighbors to the extent of their power. It is not claimed that they received a revelation. It is admitted that they had no knowledge of the true God. And yet, by a strange coincidence, they practiced the same crimes, of their own motion, that the Jews did by the command of Jehovah. From this it would seem that man can do wrong without a special revelation. It will hardly be claimed, at this day, that the passages in the Bible upholding slavery, polygamy, war, and religious persecution are evidences of the inspiration of that book. Suppose that there had been nothing in the Old Testament upholding these crimes, would any modern Christian suspect that it was not inspired, on account of the omission? Suppose that there had been nothing in the Old Testament but laws in favor of these crimes, would any intelligent Christian now contend that it was the work of the true God? If the devil had inspired a book, will some believer in the doctrine of inspiration tell us in what respect, on the subjects of slavery, polygamy, war, and liberty it would have differed from some parts of the Old Testament? Suppose that we should now discover a Hindu book of equal antiquity with the Old Testament, containing a defense of slavery, polygamy, wars of extermination, and religious persecution, would we regard it as evidence that the writers were inspired by an infinitely wise and merciful God? As most other nations at that time practiced these crimes, and as the Jews would have practiced them all, even if left to themselves, one can hardly see the necessity of any inspired commands upon these subjects. Is there a believer in the Bible who does not wish that God, amid the thunders and lightnings of Sinai, had distinctly said to Moses that man should not own his fellow man? that women should not sell their babes, that men should be allowed to think and investigate for themselves, and that the sword should never be unsheathed to shed the blood of honest men? Is there a believer in the world who would not be delighted to find that every one of these infamous passages are interpolations, and that the skirts of God were never reddened by the blood of maiden, wife, or babe? Is there a believer who does not regret that God commanded a husband to stone his wife to death for suggesting the worship of the sun or moon? Surely, the light of experience is enough to tell us that slavery is wrong, that polygamy is infamous, and that murder is not a virtue. No one will now contend that it was worth God's while to impart the information to Moses or to Joshua, or to anybody else, that the Jewish people might purchase slaves of the heathen, or that it was their duty to exterminate the natives of the Holy Land. The deists have contended that the Old Testament is too cruel and barbarous to be the work of a wise and loving God. To this, the theologians have replied, that nature is just as cruel, that the earthquake, the volcano, the pestilence and storm, are just as savage as the Jewish God, and to my mind this is a perfect answer. Suppose that we knew that after, inspired, men had finished the Bible, the devil got possession of it, and wrote a few passages. What part of the sacred scriptures would Christians now pick out as being probably his work? Which of the following passages would naturally be selected as having been written by the devil? Love thy neighbor as thyself. Or, 
Kill all the males among the little ones, and kill every woman. But all the women children keep alive for yourselves. It may be that the best way to illustrate what I have said of the Old Testament is to compare some of the supposed teachings of Jehovah with those of persons who never read in, inspired, line, and who lived and died without having received the light of revelation. Nothing can be more suggestive than a comparison of the ideas of Jehovah, the inspired words of the one claimed to be the infinite God, as recorded in the Bible, with those that have been expressed by men who, all admit, received no help from heaven. In all ages of which any record has been preserved, there have been those who gave their ideas of justice, charity, liberty, love, and law. Now, if the Bible is really the work of God, it should contain the grandest and sublimest truths. It should, in all respects, excel the works of man. Within that book should be found the best and loftiest definitions of justice, the truest conceptions of human liberty, the clearest outlines of duty, the tenderest, the highest, and the noblest thoughts, not that the human mind has produced, but that the human mind is capable of receiving. Upon every page should be found the luminous evidence of its divine origin. Unless it contains grander and more wonderful things than man has written, we are not only justified in saying, but we are compelled to say, that it was written by no being superior to man. It may be said that it is unfair to call attention to certain bad things in the Bible while the good are not so much as mentioned. To this it may be replied that a divine being would not put bad things in a book. Certainly a being of infinite intelligence, power, and goodness could never fall below the ideal of depraved and barbarous man. It will not do, after we find that the Bible upholds what we now call crimes, to say that it is not verbally inspired. If the words are not inspired, what is? It may be said that the thoughts are inspired but this would include only the thoughts expressed without words if ideas are inspired they must be contained in and expressed only by inspired words, that is, to say, the arrangement of the words, with relation, to each other, must have been inspired for the purpose of this perfect arrangement, the writers, according to the Christian world, were inspired. Were some sculptor inspired, of God to make a statue perfect in its every part, we would not say that the marble was inspired, but the statue the relation of part to part, the married, harmony of form and function. The language, the words, take the place of the marble, and it is the arrangement of these words that Christians claim to be inspired. If there is one uninspired word, that is, one word in the wrong place, or a word that ought not to be there, to that extent the Bible is an uninspired book. The moment it is admitted that some words are not, and their arrangement as to other words, inspired then, Unless with absolute certainty these words can be pointed out, a doubt is cast on all the words the book contains. If it was worth God's while to make a revelation to man at all, it was certainly worth his while to see to it that it was correctly made. He would not have allowed the ideas and mistakes of pretended prophets and designing priests to become so mingled with the original text that it is impossible to tell where he ceased and where the priests and prophets began. Neither will it do to say that God adapted his revelation to the prejudices of mankind. Of course it was necessary for an infinite being to adapt his revelation to the intellectual capacity of man. But why should God confirm a barbarian in his prejudices? Why should he fortify a heathen in his crimes? If a revelation is of any importance whatever, it is to eradicate prejudices from the human mind. It should be a lever with which to raise the human race. 
theologians have exhausted their ingenuity in finding excuses for God. It seems to me that they would be better employed in finding excuses for men. They tell us that the Jews were so cruel and ignorant that God was compelled to justify, or nearly to justify, many of their crimes, in order to have any influence with them whatever. They tell us that if he had declared slavery and polygamy to be criminal, the Jews would have refused to receive the Ten Commandments. They insist that, under the circumstances, God did the best he could, that his real intention was to lead them along slowly, step by step, so that, in a few hundred years, they would be induced to admit that it was hardly fair to steal a babe from its mother's breast. It has always seemed reasonable that an infinite God ought to have been able to make man grand enough to know, even without a special revelation, that it is not altogether right to steal the labor, or the wife, or the child, of another. When the whole question is thoroughly examined, the world will find that Jehovah had the prejudices, the hatreds and the superstitions of his day. If there is anything of value, it is liberty. Liberty is the air of the soul, the sunshine of life. Without it the world is a prison and the universe an infinite dungeon. If the Bible is really inspired Jehovah commanded the Jewish people to buy the children of the strangers that sojourned among them, and ordered that the children thus bought should be an inheritance for the children of the Jews, and that they should be bondmen and bondwomen forever. Yet Epictetus, a man to whom no revelation was ever made, a man whose soul followed only the light of nature, and who had never heard of the Jewish God, was great enough to say, Will you not remember that your servants are by nature your brothers, the children of God? In saying that you have bought them, you look down on the earth, and into the pit, on the wretched law of men long since dead, but you see not the laws of the gods. We find that Jehovah, speaking to his chosen people, assured them that their bondmen and their bondmaids must be. Of the heathen that were round about them. Of them, said Jehovah, shall you buy bondmen and bondmaid. And yet Cicero, a pagan, Cicero, who had never been enlightened by reading the Old Testament, had the moral grandeur to declare. They who say that we should love our fellow citizens, but not foreigners, destroyed the universal brotherhood of mankind, with which benevolence and justice would perish forever. If the Bible is inspired, Jehovah God of all worlds actually said, And if a man smite his servant or his maid with a rod, and he die under his hand, he shall be surely punished, notwithstanding, if he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his money. And yet Zeno, founder of the Stoics, centuries before Christ was born, insisted that no man could be the owner of another, and that the title was bad, whether the slave had become so by conquest, or by purchase. Jehovah ordered a Jewish general to make war, and gave, among others, this command. When the Lord thy God shall drive them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. And yet Epictetus whom we have already quoted, gave this marvelous rule for the guidance of human conduct. Live with thy inferiors as thou wouldst have thy superiors live with thee. Is it possible, after all, that a being of infinite goodness and wisdom said, I will heap mischief upon them, I will send my arrows upon them, they shall be burned with hunger, and devoured with burning heat, and with bitter destruction. I will send the tooth of beasts among them, with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword without, and terror within, shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling, also, with the man of gray hairs. While Seneca, 
an uninspired Roman said, The wise man will not pardon any crime that ought to be punished, but he will accomplish, in a nobler way, all that is sought in pardoning. He will spare some and watch over some, because of their youth, and others on account of their ignorance. His clemency will not fall short of justice, but will fulfill it perfectly. Can we believe that God ever said of anyone? Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds, and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath, and let the stranger spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, either let there be any to favor his fatherless children. If he ever said these words, surely he had never heard this line, this strain of music, from the Hindu. Sweet is the lute to those who have not heard the prattle of their own children. Jehovah, from the clouds and darkness of Sinai, said to the Jews, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Contrast these with the words put by the Hindu in the mouth of Brahma. I am the same to all mankind. They who honestly serve other gods, involuntarily worship me. I am he who partaketh of all worship, and I am the reward of all worshippers. Compare these passages. The first, a dungeon where crawl the things begot of jealous slime. The other, great as the domed firmament inlaid with suns. 2. Waving the contradictory statements in the various books of the New Testament leaving out of the question the history of the manuscripts, saying nothing about the errors in translation and the interpolations made by the fathers, and admitting, for the time being, that the books were all written at the times claimed, and by the persons whose names they bear, the questions of inspiration, probability, and absurdity still remain. As a rule, where several persons testify to the same transaction, while agreeing in the main points, they will disagree upon many minor things, and such disagreement upon minor matters is generally considered as evidence that the witnesses have not agreed among themselves upon the story they should tell. These differences in statement we account for from the facts that all did not see alike, that all did not have the same opportunity for seeing, and that all had not equally good memories. But when we claim that the witnesses were inspired, we must admit that he who inspired them did know exactly what occurred, and consequently there should be no contradiction even in the minutest detail. The accounts should be not only substantially, but they should be actually the same. It is impossible to account for any differences, or any contradictions, except from the weaknesses of human nature, and these weaknesses cannot be predicated of divine wisdom. Why should there be more than one correct account of anything? Why were four Gospels necessary? One inspired record of all that happened ought to be enough. One great objection to the Old Testament is the cruelty said to have been commanded by God, but all the cruelties recounted in the Old Testament ceased with death. The vengeance of Jehovah stopped at the portal of the tomb. He never threatened to avenge himself upon the dead, and not one word, from the first mistake in Genesis to the last curse of Malachi, contains the slightest intimation that God will punish in another world. It was reserved for the New Testament to make known the frightful doctrine of eternal pain. It was the teacher of universal benevolence who rent the veil between time and eternity, and fixed the horrified gaze of man on the lurid gulfs of hell. Within the breast of non-resistance was coiled the worm that never dies. 
One great objection to the New Testament is that it bases salvation upon belief. This, at least, is true of the Gospel according to John, and of many of the epistles. I admit that Matthew never heard of the Atonement, and died utterly ignorant of the scheme of salvation. I also admit that Mark never dreamed that it was necessary for a man to be born again, that he knew nothing of the mysterious doctrine of regeneration, and that he never even suspected that it was necessary to believe anything. In the sixteenth chapter of Mark, we are told that, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. But this passage has been shown to be an interpolation, and consequently, not a solitary word is found in the gospel according to Mark upon the subject of salvation by faith. The same is also true of the gospel of Luke. It says not one word as to the necessity of believing on Jesus Christi, not one word as to the atonement, not one word upon the scheme of salvation, and not the slightest hint that it is necessary to believe anything here in order to be happy hereafter. And I here take occasion to say that with most of the teachings of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke I most heartily agree. The miraculous parts must, of course, be thrown aside. I admit that the necessity of belief, the atonement, and the scheme of salvation are all set forth in the Gospel of John, a gospel, in my opinion, not written until long after the others. According to the prevailing Christian belief, the Christian religion rests upon the doctrine of the atonement. If this doctrine is without foundation, if it is repugnant to justice and mercy, the fabric falls. We are told that the first man committed a crime for which all his posterity are responsible, in other words, that we are accountable, and can be justly punished for a sin we never in fact committed. This absurdity was the father of another, namely, that a man can be rewarded for a good action done by another. God, according to the modern theologians, made a law, with the penalty of eternal death for its infraction. All men, they say, have broken that law. In the economy of heaven, this law had to be vindicated. This could be done by damning the whole human race. Through what is known as the atonement, the salvation of a few was made possible. They insist that the law, whatever that is, demanded the extreme penalty, that justice called for its victims, and that even mercy ceased to plead. Under these circumstances God, by allowing the innocent to suffer, satisfactorily settled with the law, and allowed a few of the guilty to escape. The law was satisfied with this arrangement. To carry out this scheme, God was born as a babe into this world. He grew in stature and increased in knowledge. At the age of thirty-three, after having lived a life filled with kindness, charity, and nobility, after having practiced every virtue, he was sacrificed as an atonement for man. It is claimed that he actually took our place, and bore our sins and our guilt, that in this way the justice of God was satisfied, and that the blood of Christ was an atonement, an expiation, for the sins of all who might believe on him. Under the Mosaic dispensation, there was no remission of sin except through the shedding of blood. If a man committed certain sins, he must bring to the priest a lamb, a bullock, a goat, or a pair of turtle doves. The priest would lay his hands upon the animal, and the sin of the man would be transferred. Then the animal would be killed in the place of the real sinner, and the blood thus shed and sprinkled upon the altar would be an atonement. In this way Jehovah was satisfied. The greater the crime, the greater the sacrifice, the more blood, the greater the atonement. There was always a certain ratio between the value of the animal and the enormity of the sin. 
the most minute directions were given about the killing of these animals, and about the sprinkling of their blood. Every priest became a butcher, and every sanctuary a slaughterhouse. Nothing could be more utterly shocking to a refined and loving soul. Nothing could have been better calculated to harden the heart than this continual shedding of innocent blood. This terrible system is supposed to have culminated in the sacrifice of Christ. His blood took the place of all other. It is necessary to shed no more. The law at last is satisfied, satiated, surfeited. The idea that God wants blood is at the bottom of the atonement, and rests upon the most fearful savagery. How can sin be transferred from men to animals, and how can the shedding of the blood of animals atone for the sins of men? The church says that the sinner is in debt to God, and that the obligation is discharged by the Savior. The best that can possibly be said of such a transaction is, that the debt is transferred, not paid. The truth is, that a sinner is in debt to the person he has injured. If a man injures his neighbor, it is not enough for him to get the forgiveness of God, but he must have the forgiveness of his neighbor. If a man puts his hand in the fire and God forgives him, his hand will smart exactly the same. You must, after all, reap what you sow. No God can give you wheat when you sow tares, and no devil can give you tares when you sow wheat. There are in nature either rewards nor punishments. There are consequences. The life of Christ is worth its example, its moral force, its heroism of benevolence. To make innocent suffer is the greatest sin. How then is it possible to make the suffering of the innocent a justification for the criminal? Why should a man be willing to let the innocent suffer for him? Does not the willingness show that he is utterly unworthy of the sacrifice? Certainly, no man would be fit for heaven who would consent that an innocent person should suffer for his sin. What would we think of a man who would allow another to die for a crime that he himself had committed? What would we think of a law that allowed the innocent to take the place of the guilty? Is it possible to vindicate a just law by inflicting punishment on the innocent? Would not that be a second violation instead of a vindication? If there was no general atonement until the crucifixion of Christ, what became of the countless millions who died before that time? And it must be remembered that the blood shed by the Jews was not for other nations. Jehovah hated foreigners. The Gentiles were left without forgiveness. What has become of the millions who have died since, without having heard of the atonement? What becomes of those who have heard but have not believed? It seems to me that the doctrine of the atonement is absurd, unjust, and immoral. Can a law be satisfied by the execution of the wrong person? When a man commits a crime, the laws demands his punishment, not that of a substitute, and there can be no law, human or divine, that can be satisfied by the punishment of a substitute. Can there be a jaw that demands that the guilty be rewarded? And yet to reward the guilty is far nearer justice than to punish the innocent. According to the Orthodox theology, there would have been no heaven had no atonement been made. All the children of men would have been cast into hell forever. The old men bowed with grief, the smiling mothers, the sweet babes, the loving maidens, the brave, the tender, and the just, would have been given over to eternal pain. Man, it is claimed, can make no atonement for himself. If he commits one sin, and with that exception lives a life of perfect virtue, still that one sin would remain unexpiated, when atoned, and for that one sin he would be forever lost to be saved by the goodness of another to be a redeemed debtor forever, 
has in it something repugnant to manhood. We must also remember that Jehovah took special charge of the Jewish people, and we have always been taught that he did so for the purpose of civilizing them. If he had succeeded in civilizing the Jews, he would have made the damnation of the entire human race a certainty. Because, if the Jews had been a civilized people when Christ appeared, a people whose hearts had not been hardened by the laws and teachings of Jehovah, they would not have crucified him, and, as a consequence, the world would have been lost. If the Jews had believed in religious freedom, in the right of thought and speech, not a human soul could ever have been saved. If, when Christ was on his way to Calvary backslash some brave, heroic soul had rescued him from the holy mob, he would not only have been eternally damned for his pains, but would have rendered impossible the salvation of any human being. And except for the crucifixion of her son, the Virgin Mary, if the church is right, would be today among the lost. In countless ways the Christian world has endeavored, for nearly two thousand years, to explain the atonement, and every effort has ended in an admission that it cannot be understood, and a declaration that it must be believed. Is it not immoral to teach that man can sin, that he can harden his heart and pollute his soul, and that, by repenting and believing something that he does not comprehend, he can avoid the consequences of his crimes? Has the promise and hope of forgiveness ever prevented the commission of a sin? Should men be taught that sin gives happiness here, that they ought to bear the evils of a virtuous life in this world for the sake of joy in the next, that they can repent between the last sin and the last breath, that after repentance every stain of the soul is washed away by the innocent blood of another, that the serpent of regret will not hiss in the ear of memory, that the saved will not even pity the victims of their own crimes that the goodness of another can be transferred to them. And that sins forgiven cease to affect the unhappy wretches sinned against? Another objection is that a certain belief is necessary to save the soul. It is often asserted that to believe is the only safe way. If you wish to be safe, be honest. Nothing can be safer than that. No matter what his belief may be, no man, even in the hour of death, can regret having been honest. It never can be necessary to throw away your reason to save your soul. A soul without reason is scarcely worth saving. There is no more degrading doctrine than that of mental non-resistance. The soul has a right to defend its castle, the brain, and he who waves that right becomes a serf and slave. Neither can I admit that a man, by doing me an injury, can place me under obligation to do him a service. To render benefits for injuries is to ignore all distinctions between actions. He who treats his friends and enemies alike has either love nor justice. The idea of non-resistance never occurred to a man with power to protect himself. This doctrine was the child of weakness, born when resistance was impossible. To allow a crime to be committed when you can prevent it is next to committing the crime yourself. And yet, under the banner of non-resistance, the church has shed the blood of millions and in the folds of her sacred vestments have gleamed the daggers of assassination. With her cunning hand she wove the purple for hypocrisy, and placed the crown upon the brow of crime. For a thousand years larceny held the scales of justice, while beggars scorned the princely sons of toil, and ignorant fear denounced the liberty of thought. If Christ was in fact God, he knew all the future. Before him, like a panorama, moved the history yet to be. He knew exactly how his words would be interpreted. He knew what crimes, what horrors, what infamies would be committed in his name. 
he knew that the fires of persecution would climb around the limbs of countless martyrs. He knew that brave men would languish in dungeons, in darkness, filled with pain, that the church would use instruments of torture, that his followers would appeal to whip and chain. He must have seen the horizon of the future red with the flames of the auto de fe. He knew all the creeds that would spring like poison fungi from every text. He saw the sects waging war against each other. He saw thousands of men, under the orders of priests, building dungeons for their fellow men. He saw them using instruments of pain. He heard the groans, saw the faces white with agony, the tears, the blood, heard the shrieks and sobs of all the moaning, martyred multitudes. He knew that commentaries would be written on his words with swords, to be read by the light of faggots. He knew that the Inquisition would be born of teachings attributed to him. He saw all the interpolations and falsehoods that hypocrisy would write and tell. He knew that above these fields of death, these dungeons, these burnings, for a thousand years would float the dripping banner of the cross. He knew that in his name his followers would trade in human flesh, that cradles would be robbed, and women's breasts unbabed for gold, and yet he died with voiceless lips. Why did he fail to speak? Why did he not tell his disciples, and through them the world, that man should not persecute, for opinion's sake, his fellow man? Why did he not cry, You shall not persecute in my name, you shall not burn and torment those who differ from you in creed? Why did he not plainly say, I am the Son of God? Why did he not explain the doctrine of the Trinity? Why did he not tell the manner of baptism that was pleasing to him? Why did he not say something positive, definite, and satisfactory about another world? Why did he not turn the tear-stained hope of heaven to the glad knowledge of another life? Why did he go dumbly to his death, leaving the world to misery and to doubt? He came, they tell us, to make a revelation, and what did he reveal? Love thy neighbor as thyself. That was in the Old Testament. Love God with all thy heart. That was in the Old Testament. Return good for evil. That was said by Buddha seven hundred years before he was born. Do unto others as ye would that they should do unto you. This was the doctrine of Lao Tse. Did he come to give a rule of action? Zoroaster had done this long before. Whenever thou art in doubt as to whether an action is good or bad, abstain from it. Did he come to teach us of another world? The immortality of the soul had been taught by Hindus, Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans hundreds of years before he was born. Long before, the world had been told by Socrates that one who is injured ought not to return the injury, for on no account can it be right to do an injustice, and it is not right to return an injury, or to do evil to any man, however much we may have suffered from him. And Cicero had said, Let us not listen to those who think that we ought to be angry with our enemies and who believe this to be great and manly. Nothing is more praiseworthy, nothing so clearly shows a great and noble soul, as clemency and readiness to forgive. Is there anything nearer perfect than this from Confucius? For benefits return benefits. For injuries return justice without any admixture of revenge. The dogma of eternal punishment rests upon passages in the New Testament. This infamous belief subverts every idea of justice. Around the angel of immortality the church has coiled this serpent. A finite being can neither commit an infinite sin, nor a sin against the infinite. A being of infinite goodness and wisdom has no right, according to the human standard of justice, to create any being destined to suffer eternal pain. 
a being of infinite wisdom would not create a failure, and surely a man destined to everlasting agony is not a success. How long, according to the universal benevolence of the New Testament, can a man be reasonably punished in the next world for failing to believe something unreasonable in this? Can it be possible that any punishment can endure forever? Suppose that every flake of snow that ever fell was a figure nine, and that the first flake was multiplied by the second, and that product by the third, and so on to the last flake. And then suppose that this total should be multiplied by every drop of rain that ever fell, calling each drop a figure nine, and that total by each blade of grass that ever helped to weave a carpet for the earth, calling each blade a figure nine, and that again by every grain of sand on every shore, so that the grand total would make a line of nine so long that it would require millions upon millions of years for light, traveling at the rate of 185,000 miles per second to reach the end. And suppose, further, that each unit in this almost infinite total stood for billions of ages, still that vast and almost endless time, measured by all the years beyond, is as one flake, one drop, one leaf, one blade, one grain, compared with all the flakes, and drops, and leaves, and blades, and grains. Upon love's breast the church has placed the eternal ASP. And yet, in the same book in which is taught this most infamous of doctrines, we are assured that the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. So far as we know, man is the author of all books. If a book had been found on the earth by the first man, he might have regarded it as the work of God. But as men were here good while before any books were found, and as man has produced a great many books, the probability is that the Bible is no exception. Most nations, at the time the Old Testament was written, believed in slavery, polygamy, wars of extermination, and religious persecution, and it is not wonderful that the book contained nothing contrary to such belief. The fact that it was in exact accord with the morality of its time proves that it was not the product of any being superior to man. The inspired writers upheld or established slavery, countenanced polygamy, commanded wars of extermination, and ordered the slaughter of women and babes. In these respects they were precisely like the uninspired savages by whom they were surrounded. They also taught and commanded religious persecution as a duty, and visited the most trivial offenses with the punishment of death. In these particulars they were in exact accord with their barbarian neighbors. They were utterly ignorant of geology and astronomy, and knew no more of what had happened than of what would happen, and, so far as accuracy is concerned, their history and prophecy were about equal. In other words, they were just as ignorant as those who lived and died in nature's night. Does any Christian believe that if God were to write a book now, he would uphold the crimes commanded in the Old Testament? Has Jehovah improved? Has infinite mercy become more merciful? Has infinite wisdom intellectually advanced? Will any one claim that the passages upholding slavery have liberated mankind, that we are indebted for our modern homes to the texts that made polygamy a virtue, or that religious liberty found its soil, its light, and reign, in the infamous verse wherein the husband is commanded to stone to death the wife for worshipping an unknown god? The usual answer to these objections is that no country has ever been civilized without the Bible. The Jews were the only people to whom Jehovah made his will directly known, the only people who had the Old Testament. Other nations were utterly neglected by their Creator. Yet, such was the effect of the Old Testament on the Jews, that they crucified a kind, loving, 
and perfectly innocent man. They could not have done much worse without a Bible. In the crucifixion of Christ, they followed the teachings of his Father. If, as it is now alleged by the theologians, no nation can be civilized without a Bible, certainly God must have known the fact six thousand years ago, as well as the theologians know it now. Why did he not furnish every nation with a Bible? As to the Old Testament, I insist that all the bad passages were written by men, that those passages were not inspired. I insist that a being of infinite goodness never commanded man to enslave his fellow man, never told a mother to sell her babe, never established polygamy, never ordered one nation to exterminate another, and never told a husband to kill his wife because she suggested the worshipping of some other god. I also insist that the Old Testament would be a much better book with all of these passages left out, and whatever may be said of the rest, the passages to which attention has been drawn can with vastly more propriety be attributed to a devil than to a god. Take from the New Testament all passages upholding the idea that belief is necessary to salvation, that Christ was offered as an atonement for the sins of the world, that the punishment of the human soul will go on forever, that heaven is the reward of faith, and held the penalty of honest investigation. Take from it all miraculous stories, and I admit that all the good passages are true. If they are true, it makes no difference whether they are inspired or not. Inspiration is only necessary to give authority to that which is repugnant to human reason. Only that which never happened needs to be substantiated by miracles. The universe is natural. The church must cease to insist that the passages upholding the institutions of savage men were inspired of God, the dogma of the atonement must be abandoned. Good deeds must take the place of faith. The savagery of eternal punishment must be renounced. Credulity is not a virtue, and investigation is not a crime. Miracles are the children of mendacity. Nothing can be more wonderful than the majestic, unbroken, sublime, and eternal procession of causes and effects. Reason must be the final arbiter. Inspired books attested by miracles cannot stand against a demonstrated fact. A religion that does not command the respect of the greatest minds will, in a little while, excite the mockery of all. Every civilized man believes in the liberty of thought. Is it possible that God is intolerant? Is an act infamous in man one of the virtues of the deity? Could there be progress in heaven without intellectual liberty? Is the freedom of the future to exist only in perdition? Is it not, after all, barely possible that a man acting like Christ can be saved? Is a man to be eternally rewarded for believing according to evidence, without evidence, or against evidence? Are we to be saved because we are good, or because another was virtuous? Is credulity to be winged and crowned, while honest doubt is chained and a damned? Do not misunderstand me. My position is that the cruel passages in the Old Testament are not inspired, that slavery, polygamy, wars of extermination, and religious persecution always have been, are, and forever will be, abhorred and cursed by the honest, the virtuous, and the loving, that the innocent cannot justly suffer for the guilty, and that vicarious vice and vicarious virtue are equally absurd. That eternal punishment is eternal revenge, that only the natural can happen that miracles prove the dishonesty of the few and the credulity of the many, and that, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, salvation does not depend upon belief, nor the atonement, nor a second birth, but that these gospel are in exact harmony with the declaration of the great Persian.
taking the first footstep with the good thought, the second with the good word, and the third with the good deed, I entered paradise. The dogmas of the past no longer reached the level of the highest thought, nor satisfied the hunger of the heart. While dusty faiths, embalmed and sepulchred in ancient texts, remain the same, the sympathies of men enlarge. The brain no longer kills its young. The happy lips give liberty to honest thoughts. The mental firmament expands and lifts. The broken clouds drift by. The hideous dreams, the foul, misshapen children of the monstrous night, dissolve and fade. The Christian Religion By Robert Green Ingersoll Introduction England is now for the first time offering to the toiling portion of its people a fair modicum of the education which was in old time the exclusive privilege of the rich. In doing so it has acted with a keen eye to self-preservation, for the history of every fallen nation shows that the unaided ignorance of the masses has been a principal and fatal element in its downfall. This truth would seem to be not yet fully realized by all of higher education in the country. For the teaching that many of them counsel for the poor is clogged with ignorance, and clouded with error from which their own higher culture has long been free. It is distressing to see men who no longer regard the Bible as anything more than a curious and interesting record, a compound of reflections of ancient myths and poetry, commingled with a considerable amount of fabulous history and absurd theology. To see any such man still arguing that for the poor and for the young it is a necessary subject of study, and for them, a useful article of belief. Do those who argue thus deem the light of reason too clear, too pure, too delightful, for mankind at large? Or is it that they trust that the useful ignorance of the workers will continue to supply them with unmerited or unworthy luxuries? In either case can the position endure. The refinement of Rome might loftily echo. But Rome has herself fallen, and not on the portals of future science or of humanity shall any such motto be written. Freedom of knowledge is the corollary to freedom of thought. In the society of the future no hierarchy or oligarchy of intellect will close its doors upon the masses. None will find delight in either sensuous or intellectual pleasure obtained at the cost of the baser condition of others. The following reprint will be found a clear exposition of the incongruities of creed and record and dogma taught to the poor as a system of ethics for the whole of their life, and held as a convenient thing up to a certain age for the young and especially the female young, of the money classes. It is time that such warfare as this should be aggressive, that such books as the present should be part of the food of our children. Our truest feelings and our tenderest years have been enslaved to blind faith, unreasoning credulity and degrading fear. Our infant lips have been trained to link in loving accents the gentle and holy names of mother and of father with that of a god of jealousy, of vengeance, and brutality. Our growing mind has been warned to look to a Hebrew ascetic as the noblest type of the divine, and to a Hebrew profligate and murderer as the highest type of the human. As the opening thought of youth has striven to turn to the light of reason, it has been constantly threatened back and thrust back into the dark of superstition. It has been told that eternal misery is the doom of those who leave the paths of dogma, and it has been falsely and persistently taught that free thinkers are evil and unclean, men without care for right scoffers at every good thing. But it is not scoffers who wage this war of the rational against the supernatural. Let none deceive themselves with that vain thought, or perpetuate the incorrect assertion. Of such books as the present, such writings as the present, some at least are the words of men and women who have been born to, and striven toward a godly life, with intense effort, 
with groanings not to be uttered, who, nursed in the bosom of the church, and partakers in all her most sacred ordinances, crushed down as unholy the first and the repeated breathings of doubt and of reasoning their minds, who held to the falseness of their early teachings, till there came that final struggle, when they wrestled with God to hold him, not to lose him, gasping with fevered lips and shut teeth and scalding eyelids. I will not let thee go. And who won a blessing they knew not of in that they proved the Jehovah of Hebraism, the God of Christianity, to be an Apollyon of superstition, who cast him off in disgust, in loathing, in half-despair, who lay faint and bleeding through a night of darkness, but to whom, with the dawn, has come the free and bracing air of reason, and then the deep warm glow of true life, and humanity, and universal love, love given this time not to a fetish, but to every fellow being, to man and beast, to tree and moss, to stone and star. With a great price obtained we this freedom, and we will that our sons and that our daughters be free-born. To such a liberator as Robert G., Ingersoll the thanks of present parents are lovingly offered. His name will be cherished by our children, and his memory hallowed in the gratitude of generations yet unborn. B. Rudyard, Ninth Month, 1881. Bokegarni. The Christian Religion. I. A profound change has taken place in the world of thought. The pews are trying to set themselves somewhat above the pulpit. The layman discusses theology with the minister and smiles. Christians excuse themselves for belonging to the church by denying a part of the creed. The idea is abroad that they who know the most of nature believe the least about theology. The sciences are regarded as infidels, and facts as scoffers. Thousands of most excellent people avoid churches, and with few exceptions, only those attend prayer meetings who wish to be alone. The pulpit is losing because the people are growing. Of course it is still claimed that we are a Christian people, indebted to something called Christianity for all the progress we have made. There is still a vast difference of opinion as to what Christianity really is, although many warring sects have been discussing that question, with fire and sword, through centuries of creed and crime. Every new sect has been denounced at its birth as illegitimate, as a something born out of orthodox wedlock and that should have been allowed to perish on the steps where it was found. Of the relative merits of the various denominations, it is sufficient to say that each claims to be right among the evangelical churches there is a substantial agreement upon what they consider the fundamental truths of the gospel. These fundamental truths, as I understand them, are that there is a personal God, the creator of the material universe, that he made man of the dust, and woman from part of the man, that the man and woman were tempted by the devil, that they were turned out of the garden of Aden, that, about fifteen hundred years afterward, God's patience having been exhausted by the wickedness of mankind, he drowned his children with the exception of eight persons. That afterward he selected from their descendants Abraham, and through him the Jewish people. That he gave laws to these people, and tried to govern them in all things. That he made known his will in many ways. That he wrought a vast number of miracles. That he inspired men to write the Bible. That, in the fullness of time, it having been found impossible to reform man, this God came upon earth as a child born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived in Palestine, that he preached for about three years, going from place to place, occasionally raising the dead, curing the blind and the halt, that he was crucified, for the crime of blasphemy, as the Jews supposed, but that, as a matter of fact, 
he was offered as a sacrifice for the sins of all who might have faith in him, that he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven where he now is, making intercession for his followers, that he will forgive the sins of all who believe on him, and that those who do not believe will be consigned to the dungeons of eternal pain. These, it may be with the addition of the sacraments of baptism and the Last Supper, constitute what is generally known as the Christian religion. It is most cheerfully admitted that a vast number of people not only believe these things, but hold them in exceeding reverence, and imagine them to be of the utmost importance to mankind. They regard the Bible as the only light that God has given for the guidance of his children, that it is the one star in nature's sky, the foundation of all morality, of all law, of all order, and of all individual and national progress. They regard it as the only means we have for ascertaining the will of God, the origin of man, and the destiny of the soul. It is needless to inquire into the causes that have led so many people to believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. In my opinion, they were and are mistaken, and the mistake has hindered, in countless ways, the civilization of man. The Bible has been the fortress and defense of nearly every crime. No civilized country could reenact its laws and in many respects its moral code is abhorrent to every good and tender man. It is admitted that many of its precepts are pure, that many of its laws are wise and just, and that many of its statements are absolutely true. Without desiring to hurt the feelings of anybody, I propose to give a few reasons for thinking that a few passages, at least, in the Old Testament are the product of a barbarous people. In all civilized countries it is not only admitted, but it is passionately asserted, that slavery is and always was a hideous crime, that a war of conquest is simply murder, that polygamy is the enslavement of woman, the degradation of man, and the destruction of home, that nothing is more infamous than the slaughter of decrepit men, of helpless women, and of prattling babes, that captured maidens should not be given to soldiers, that wives should not be stoned to death on account of their religious opinions, and that the death penalty ought not to be inflicted for a violation of the Sabbath. We know that there was a time, in the history of almost every nation, when slavery, polygamy, and wars of extermination were regarded as divine institutions, when women were looked upon as beasts of burden, and when, among some people, it was considered the duty of the husband to murder the wife for differing with him on the subject of religion. Nations that entertain these views today are regarded as savage, and probably, with the exception of the South Sea Islanders, the Fijis, some citizens of Delaware, and a few tribes in Central Africa, no human beings can be found degraded enough to agree upon these subjects with the Jehovah of the ancient Jews. The only evidence we have, or can have, that a nation has ceased to be savage is the fact that it has abandoned these doctrines. To everyone, except the theologian, it is perfectly easy to account for the mistakes, atrocities, and crimes of the past, by saying that civilization is a slow and painful growth, that the moral perceptions are cultivated through ages of tyranny, of want, of crime, and of heroism, that it requires centuries for man to put out the eyes of self and hold in lofty and in equal poise the scales of justice. That conscience is born of suffering, that mercy is the child of the imagination, of the power to put oneself in the sufferer's place and that man advances only as he becomes acquainted with his surroundings, with the mutual obligations of life, and learns to take advantage of the forces of nature. But the believer in the inspiration of the Bible is compelled to declare that there was a time when slavery was right, 
when men could buy, and women could sell, their babes. He is compelled to insist that there was a time when polygamy was the highest form of virtue, when wars of extermination were waged with the sword of mercy, when religious toleration was a crime, and when death was the just penalty for having expressed an honest thought. He must maintain that Jehovah is just as bad now as he was four thousand years ago, or that he was just as good then as he is now, but that human conditions have so changed that slavery, polygamy, religious persecutions, and wars of conquest are now perfectly devilish. Once they were right, once they were commanded by God himself, now they are prohibited. There has been such a change in the conditions of man that, at the present time, the devil is in favor of slavery, polygamy, religious persecution, and wars of conquest. That is to say, the devil entertains the same opinion today that Jehovah held four thousand years ago, but in the meantime Jehovah has remained exactly the same, changeless and incapable of change. We find that other nations beside the Jews had similar laws and ideas, that they believed in and practiced slavery and polygamy, murdered women and children, and exterminated their neighbors to the extent of their power. It is not claimed that they received a revelation. It is admitted that they had no knowledge of the true God. And yet, by a strange coincidence, they practiced the same crimes, of their own motion, that the Jews did by the command of Jehovah. From this it would seem that man can do wrong without a special revelation. It will hardly be claimed, at this day, that the passages in the Bible upholding slavery, polygamy, war, and religious persecution are evidences of the inspiration of that book. Suppose that there had been nothing in the Old Testament upholding these crimes, would any modern Christian suspect that it was not inspired, on account of the omission? Suppose that there had been nothing in the Old Testament but laws in favor of these crimes, would any intelligent Christian now contend that it was the work of the true God? If the devil had inspired a book, will some believer in the doctrine of inspiration tell us in what respect, on the subjects of slavery, polygamy, war, and liberty it would have differed from some parts of the Old Testament. Suppose that we should now discover a Hindu book of equal antiquity with the Old Testament, containing a defense of slavery, polygamy, wars of extermination, and religious persecution, would we regard it as evidence that the writers were inspired by an infinitely wise and merciful God? As most other nations at that time practiced these crimes, and as the Jews would have practiced them all, even if left to themselves, one can hardly see the necessity of any inspired commands upon these subjects. Is there a believer in the Bible who does not wish that God, amid the thunders and lightnings of Sinai, had distinctly said to Moses that man should not own his fellow man, that women should not sell their babes, that men should be allowed to think and investigate for themselves, and that the sword should never be unsheathed to shed the blood of honest men? Is there a believer in the world, who would not be delighted to find that every one of these infamous passages are interpolations, and that the skirts of God were never reddened by the blood of maiden, wife, or babe? Is there a believer who does not regret that God commanded a husband to stone his wife to death for suggesting the worship of the sun or moon? Surely, the light of experience is enough to tell us that slavery is wrong, that polygamy is infamous, and that murder is not a virtue. No one will now contend that it was worth God's while to impart the information to Moses or to Joshua, or to anybody else, that the Jewish people might purchase slaves of the heathen, or that it was their duty to exterminate the natives of the Holy Land. 
The deists have contended that the Old Testament is too cruel and barbarous to be the work of a wise and loving God. To this, the theologians have replied, that nature is just as cruel, that the earthquake, the volcano, the pestilence and storm, are just as savage as the Jewish God, and to my mind this is a perfect answer. Suppose that we knew that after, inspired, men had finished the Bible, the devil got possession of it, and wrote a few passages. What part of the sacred scriptures would Christians now pick out as being probably his work? Which of the following passages would naturally be selected as having been written by the devil? Love thy neighbor as thyself. Or, kill all the males among the little ones, and kill every woman. But all the women children keep alive for yourselves. It may be that the best way to illustrate what I have said of the Old Testament is to compare some of the supposed teachings of Jehovah with those of persons who never read in inspired, line, and who lived and died without having received the light of revelation. Nothing can be more suggestive than a comparison of the ideas of Jehovah, the inspired words of the one claimed to be the infinite God, as recorded in the Bible, with those that have been expressed by men who, all admit, received no help from heaven. In all ages of which any record has been preserved, there have been those who gave their ideas of justice, charity, liberty, love, and law. Now, if the Bible is really the work of God, it should contain the grandest and sublimest truths. It should, in all respects, excel the works of man. Within that book should be found the best and loftiest definitions of justice, the truest conceptions of human liberty, the clearest outlines of duty, the tenderest, the highest, and the noblest thoughts, not that the human mind has produced, but that the human mind is capable of receiving. Upon every page should be found the luminous evidence of its divine origin. Unless it contains grander and more wonderful things than man has written, we are not only justified in saying, but we are compelled to say, that it was written by no being superior to man. It may be said that it is unfair to call attention to certain bad things in the Bible, while the good are not so much as mentioned. To this it may be replied that a divine being would not put bad things in a book. Certainly a being of infinite intelligence, power, and goodness could never fall below the ideal of depraved and barbarous man. It will not do, after we find that the Bible upholds what we now call crimes, to say that it is not verbally inspired. If the words are not inspired, what is? It may be said that the thoughts are inspired. But this would include only the thoughts expressed without words if ideas are inspired they must be contained in and expressed only by inspired words, that is, to say, the arrangement of the words, with relation, to each other, must have been inspired for the purpose of this perfect arrangement, the writers, according to the Christian world, were inspired. Were some sculptor inspired, of God to make a statue perfect in its every part, we would not say that the marble was inspired, but the statue the relation of part to part, the married, harmony of form and function. The language, the words, take the place of the marble, and it is the arrangement of these words that Christians claim to be inspired. If there is one uninspired word, that is, one word in the wrong place, or a word that ought not to be there, to that extent the Bible is an uninspired book. The moment it is admitted that some words are not, and their arrangement as to other words, inspired then, Unless with absolute certainty these words can be pointed out, a doubt is cast on all the words the book contains. If it was worth God's while to make a revelation to man at all, it was certainly worth his while to see to it that it was correctly made. 
he would not have allowed the ideas and mistakes of pretended prophets and designing priests to become so mingled with the original text that it is impossible to tell where he ceased and where the priests and prophets began. Neither will it do to say that God adapted his revelation to the prejudices of mankind. Of course it was necessary for an infinite being to adapt his revelation to the intellectual capacity of man. But why should God confirm a barbarian in his prejudices? Why should he fortify a heathen in his crimes? If a revelation is of any importance whatever, it is to eradicate prejudices from the human mind. It should be a lever with which to raise the human race. Theologians have exhausted their ingenuity in finding excuses for God. It seems to me that they would be better employed in finding excuses for men. They tell us that the Jews were so cruel and ignorant that God was compelled to justify, or nearly to justify, many of their crimes, in order to have any influence with them whatever. They tell us that if he had declared slavery and polygamy to be criminal, the Jews would have refused to receive the Ten Commandments. They insist that, under the circumstances, God did the best he could, that his real intention was to lead them along slowly, step by step, so that, in a few hundred years, they would be induced to admit that it was hardly fair to steal a babe from its mother's breast. It has always seemed reasonable that an infinite God ought to have been able to make man grand enough to know, even without a special revelation, that it is not altogether right to steal the labor, or the wife, or the child, of another. When the whole question is thoroughly examined, the world will find that Jehovah had the prejudices, the hatreds and the superstitions of his day. If there is anything of value, it is liberty. Liberty is the air of the soul, the sunshine of life. Without it the world is a prison and the universe an infinite dungeon. If the Bible is really inspired Jehovah commanded the Jewish people to buy the children of the strangers that sojourned among them, and ordered that the children thus bought should be an inheritance for the children of the Jews, and that they should be bondmen and bondwomen forever. Yet Epictetus, a man to whom no revelation was ever made, a man whose soul followed only the light of nature, and who had never heard of the Jewish God, was great enough to say, Will you not remember that your servants are by nature your brothers, the children of God? In saying that you have bought them, you look down on the earth, and into the pit, on the wretched law of men long since dead, but you see not the laws of the gods. We find that Jehovah, speaking to his chosen people, assured them that their bondmen and their bondmaids must be of the heathen that were round about them. Of them, said Jehovah, shall you buy bondmen and bondmaid? And yet Cicero, a pagan, Cicero, who had never been enlightened by reading the Old Testament, had the moral grandeur to declare, They who say that we should love our fellow citizens, but not foreigners, destroyed the universal brotherhood of mankind, with which benevolence and justice would perish forever. If the Bible is inspired, Jehovah God of all worlds actually said, And if a man smite his servant or his maid with a rod, and he die under his hand, he shall be surely punished, notwithstanding, if he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his money. And yet Zeno, founder of the Stoics, centuries before Christ was born, insisted that no man could be the owner of another, and that the title was bad, whether the slave had become so by conquest, or by purchase. Jehovah ordered a Jewish general to make war, and gave, among others, this command. When the Lord thy God shall drive them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, 
nor show mercy unto them. And yet Epictetus whom we have already quoted, gave this marvelous rule for the guidance of human conduct. Live with thy inferiors as thou wouldst have thy superiors live with thee. Is it possible, after all, that a being of infinite goodness and wisdom said, I will heap mischief upon them, I will send my arrows upon them, they shall be burned with hunger, and devoured with burning heat, and with bitter destruction. I will send the tooth of beasts among them, with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword without, and terror within, shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling, also, with the man of gray hairs. While Seneca, an uninspired Roman, said, The wise man will not pardon any crime that ought to be punished, but he will accomplish, in a nobler way, all that is sought in pardoning. He will spare some and watch over some, because of their youth, and others on account of their ignorance. His clemency will not fall short of justice, but will fulfill it perfectly. Can we believe that God ever said of anyone, Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow, let his children be continually vagabonds, and beg, let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places, let the extortioner catch all that he hath and let the stranger spoil his labor, let there be none to extend mercy unto him, either let there be any to favor his fatherless children. If he ever said these words, surely he had never heard this line, this strain of music, from the Hindu. Sweet is the lute to those who have not heard the prattle of their own children. Jehovah, from the clouds and darkness of Sinai, said to the Jews, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Contrast these with the words put by the Hindu in the mouth of Brahma. I am the same to all mankind. They who honestly serve other gods, involuntarily worship me. I am he who partaketh of all worship, and I am the reward of all worshippers. Compare these passages. The first, a dungeon where crawl the things begot of jealous slime. The other, great as the domed firmament inlaid with suns. Two, waving the contradictory statements in the various books of the New Testament leaving out of the question the history of the manuscripts, saying nothing about the errors in translation and the interpolations made by the fathers, and admitting, for the time being, that the books were all written at the times claimed, and by the persons whose names they bear, the questions of inspiration, probability, and absurdity still remain. As a rule, where several persons testify to the same transaction, while agreeing in the main points, they will disagree upon many minor things, and such disagreement upon minor matters is generally considered as evidence that the witnesses have not agreed among themselves upon the story they should tell. These differences in statement we account for from the facts that all did not see alike, that all did not have the same opportunity for seeing, and that all had not equally good memories. But when we claim that the witnesses were inspired, we must admit that he who inspired them did know exactly what occurred, and consequently there should be no contradiction even in the minutest detail. The accounts should be not only substantially, but they should be actually the same. It is impossible to account for any differences, or any contradictions, except from the weaknesses of human nature, and these weaknesses cannot be predicated of divine wisdom. Why should there be more than one correct account of anything? Why were four Gospels necessary? One inspired record of all that happened ought to be enough. 
One great objection to the Old Testament is the cruelty said to have been commanded by God, but all the cruelties recounted in the Old Testament ceased with death. The vengeance of Jehovah stopped at the portal of the tomb. He never threatened to avenge himself upon the dead, and not one word, from the first mistake in Genesis to the last curse of Malachi, contains the slightest intimation that God will punish in another world. It was reserved for the New Testament to make known the frightful doctrine of eternal pain. It was the teacher of universal benevolence who rent the veil between time and eternity, and fixed the horrified gaze of man on the lurid gulfs of hell. Within the breast of non-resistance was coiled the worm that never dies. One great objection to the New Testament is that it bases salvation upon belief. This, at least, is true of the Gospel according to John, and of many of the epistles. I admit that Matthew never heard of the Atonement, and died utterly ignorant of the scheme of salvation. I also admit that Mark never dreamed that it was necessary for a man to be born again, that he knew nothing of the mysterious doctrine of regeneration, and that he never even suspected that it was necessary to believe anything. In the sixteenth chapter of Mark, we are told that, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. But this passage has been shown to be an interpolation, and consequently, not a solitary word is found in the gospel according to Mark upon the subject of salvation by faith. The same is also true of the gospel of Luke. It says not one word as to the necessity of believing on Jesus Christi, not one word as to the atonement, not one word upon the scheme of salvation, and not the slightest hint that it is necessary to believe anything here in order to be happy hereafter. And I here take occasion to say that with most of the teachings of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke I most heartily agree. The miraculous parts must, of course, be thrown aside. I admit that the necessity of belief, the atonement, and the scheme of salvation are all set forth in the Gospel of John, a gospel, in my opinion, not written until long after the others. According to the prevailing Christian belief, the Christian religion rests upon the doctrine of the atonement. If this doctrine is without foundation, if it is repugnant to justice and mercy, the fabric falls. We are told that the first man committed a crime for which all his posterity are responsible, in other words, that we are accountable, and can be justly punished for a sin we never in fact committed. This absurdity was the father of another, namely, that a man can be rewarded for a good action done by another. God, according to the modern theologians, made a law, with the penalty of eternal death for its infraction. All men, they say, have broken that law. In the economy of heaven, this law had to be vindicated. This could be done by damning the whole human race. Through what is known as the atonement, the salvation of a few was made possible. They insist that the law, whatever that is, demanded the extreme penalty, that justice called for its victims, and that even mercy ceased to plead. Under these circumstances God, by allowing the innocent to suffer, satisfactorily settled with the law, and allowed a few of the guilty to escape. The law was satisfied with this arrangement. To carry out this scheme, God was born as a babe into this world. He grew in stature and increased in knowledge. At the age of thirty-three, after having lived a life filled with kindness, charity, and nobility, after having practiced every virtue, he was sacrificed as an atonement for man. It is claimed that he actually took our place, and bore our sins and our guilt, that in this way the justice of God was satisfied, 
and that the blood of Christ was an atonement, an expiation, for the sins of all who might believe on him. Under the Mosaic dispensation, there was no remission of sin except through the shedding of blood. If a man committed certain sins, he must bring to the priest a lamb, a bullock, a goat, or a pair of turtle doves. The priest would lay his hands upon the animal, and the sin of the man would be transferred. Then the animal would be killed in the place of the real sinner, and the blood thus shed and sprinkled upon the altar would be an atonement. In this way Jehovah was satisfied. The greater the crime, the greater the sacrifice, the more blood, the greater the atonement. There was always a certain ratio between the value of the animal and the enormity of the sin. The most minute directions were given about the killing of these animals, and about the sprinkling of their blood. Every priest became a butcher, and every sanctuary a slaughterhouse. Nothing could be more utterly shocking to a refined and loving soul. Nothing could have been better calculated to harden the heart than this continual shedding of innocent blood. This terrible system is supposed to have culminated in the sacrifice of Christ. His blood took the place of all other. It is necessary to shed no more. The law at last is satisfied, satiated, surfeited. The idea that God wants blood is at the bottom of the atonement and rests upon the most fearful savagery. How can sin be transferred from men to animals? And how can the shedding of the blood of animals atone for the sins of men? The church says that the sinner is in debt to God, and that the obligation is discharged by the Savior. The best that can possibly be said of such a transaction is, that the debt is transferred, not paid. The truth is, that a sinner is in debt to the person he has injured. If a man injures his neighbor, it is not enough for him to get the forgiveness of God, but he must have the forgiveness of his neighbor. If a man puts his hand in the fire and God forgives him, his hand will smart exactly the same. You must, after all, reap what you sow. No God can give you wheat when you sow tares, and no devil can give you tares when you sow wheat. There are in nature either rewards nor punishments. There are consequences. The life of Christ is worth its example, its moral force, its heroism of benevolence. To make innocent suffer is the greatest sin. How then is it possible to make the suffering of the innocent a justification for the criminal? Why should a man be willing to let the innocent suffer for him? Does not the willingness show that he is utterly unworthy of the sacrifice? Certainly, no man would be fit for heaven who would consent that an innocent person should suffer for his sin. What would we think of a man who would allow another to die for a crime that he himself had committed? What would we think of a law that allowed the innocent to take the place of the guilty? Is it possible to vindicate a just law by inflicting punishment on the innocent? Would not that be a second violation instead of a vindication? If there was no general atonement until the crucifixion of Christ, what became of the countless millions who died before that time? And it must be remembered that the blood shed by the Jews was not for other nations. Jehovah hated foreigners. The Gentiles were left without forgiveness. What has become of the millions who have died since? without having heard of the atonement. What becomes of those who have heard but have not believed? It seems to me that the doctrine of the atonement is absurd, unjust, and immoral. Can a law be satisfied by the execution of the wrong person? When a man commits a crime, the laws demands his punishment, not that of a substitute, and there can be no law, human or divine, that can be satisfied by the punishment of a substitute. Can there be a jaw that demands that the guilty be rewarded? 
and yet to reward the guilty is far nearer justice than to punish the innocent. According to the Orthodox theology, there would have been no heaven had no atonement been made. All the children of men would have been cast into hell forever. The old men bowed with grief, the smiling mothers, the sweet babes, the loving maidens, the brave, the tender, and the just, would have been given over to eternal pain. Man, it is claimed, can make no atonement for himself. If he commits one sin, and with that exception lives a life of perfect virtue, still that one sin would remain unexpiated, when atoned, and for that one sin he would be forever lost to be saved by the goodness of another, to be a redeemed debtor forever, has in it something repugnant to manhood. We must also remember that Jehovah took special charge of the Jewish people, and we have always been taught that he did so for the purpose of civilizing them. If he had succeeded in civilizing the Jews, he would have made the damnation of the entire human race a certainty. Because, if the Jews had been a civilized people when Christ appeared, a people whose hearts had not been hardened by the laws and teachings of Jehovah, they would not have crucified him, and, as a consequence, the world would have been lost. If the Jews had believed in religious freedom, in the right of thought and speech, not a human soul could ever have been saved. If, when Christ was on his way to Calvary backslash some brave, heroic soul had rescued him from the holy mob, he would not only have been eternally damned for his pains, but would have rendered impossible the salvation of any human being. And except for the crucifixion of her son, the Virgin Mary, if the church is right, would be today among the lost. In countless ways the Christian world has endeavored, for nearly two thousand years, to explain the atonement, and every effort has ended in an admission that it cannot be understood, and a declaration that it must be believed. Is it not immoral to teach that man can sin, that he can harden his heart and pollute his soul, and that, by repenting and believing something that he does not comprehend, he can avoid the consequences of his crimes? Has the promise and hope of forgiveness ever prevented the commission of a sin? Should men be taught that sin gives happiness here, that they ought to bear the evils of a virtuous life in this world for the sake of joy in the next, that they can repent between the last sin and the last breath? that after repentance every stain of the soul is washed away by the innocent blood of another, that the serpent of regret will not hiss in the ear of memory, that the saved will not even pity the victims of their own crimes, that the goodness of another can be transferred to them, and that sins forgiven cease to affect the unhappy wretches sinned against? Another objection is that a certain belief is necessary to save the soul. It is often asserted that to believe is the only safe way. If you wish to be safe, be honest. Nothing can be safer than that. No matter what his belief may be, no man, even in the hour of death, can regret having been honest. It never can be necessary to throw away your reason to save your soul. A soul without reason is scarcely worth saving. There is no more degrading doctrine than that of mental non-resistance. The soul has a right to defend its castle, the brain, and he who waves that right becomes a serf and slave. Neither can I admit that a man, by doing me an injury, can place me under obligation to do him a service. To render benefits for injuries is to ignore all distinctions between actions. He who treats his friends and enemies alike has either love nor justice. The idea of non-resistance never occurred to a man with power to protect himself. This doctrine was the child of weakness, born when resistance was impossible. To allow a crime to be committed when you can prevent it, is next to committing the crime yourself. And yet, 
Under the banner of non-resistance, the church has shed the blood of millions, and in the folds of her sacred vestments have gleamed the daggers of assassination. With her cunning hand she wove the purple for hypocrisy, and placed the crown upon the brow of crime. For a thousand years larceny held the scales of justice, while beggars scorned the princely sons of toil, and ignorant fear denounced the liberty of thought. If Christ was in fact God, he knew all the future. Before him, like a panorama, moved the history yet to be. He knew exactly how his words would be interpreted. He knew what crimes, what horrors, what infamies would be committed in his name. He knew that the fires of persecution would climb around the limbs of countless martyrs. He knew that brave men would languish in dungeons, in darkness, filled with pain, that the church would use instruments of torture, that his followers would appeal to whip and chain. He must have seen the horizon of the future red with the flames of the auto de fe. He knew all the creeds that would spring like poison fungi from every text. He saw the sects waging war against each other. He saw thousands of men, under the orders of priests, building dungeons for their fellow men. He saw them using instruments of pain. He heard the groans, saw the faces white with agony, the tears, the blood, heard the shrieks and sobs of all the moaning, martyred multitudes. He knew that commentaries would be written on his words with swords, to be read by the light of faggots. He knew that the Inquisition would be born of teachings attributed to him. He saw all the interpolations and falsehoods that hypocrisy would write and tell. He knew that above these fields of death, these dungeons, these burnings, for a thousand years would float the dripping banner of the cross. He knew that in his name his followers would trade in human flesh, that cradles would be robbed, and women's breasts unbabed for gold, and yet he died with voiceless lips. Why did he fail to speak? Why did he not tell his disciples, and through them the world, that man should not persecute, for opinion's sake, his fellow man? Why did he not cry, You shall not persecute in my name, you shall not burn and torment those who differ from you in creed? Why did he not plainly say, I am the Son of God? Why did he not explain the doctrine of the Trinity? Why did he not tell the manner of baptism that was pleasing to him? Why did he not say something positive, definite, and satisfactory about another world? Why did he not turn the tear-stained hope of heaven to the glad knowledge of another life? Why did he go dumbly to his death, leaving the world to misery and to doubt? He came, they tell us, to make a revelation, and what did he reveal? Love thy neighbor as thyself. That was in the Old Testament. Love God with all thy heart. That was in the Old Testament. Return good for evil. That was said by Buddha seven hundred years before he was born. Do unto others as ye would that they should do unto you. This was the doctrine of Lao Tse. Did he come to give a rule of action? Zoroaster had done this long before. Whenever thou art in doubt as to whether an action is good or bad, abstain from it. Did he come to teach us of another world? The immortality of the soul had been taught by Hindus, Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans hundreds of years before he was born. Long before, the world had been told by Socrates that one who is injured ought not to return the injury, for on no account can it be right to do an injustice, and it is not right to return an injury, or to do evil to any man, however much we may have suffered from him. And Cicero had said, Let us not listen to those who think that we ought to be angry with our enemies and who believe this to be great and manly. Nothing is more praiseworthy, nothing so clearly shows a great and noble soul, 
as clemency and readiness to forgive. Is there anything nearer perfect than this from Confucius? For benefits return benefits, for injuries return justice without any admixture of revenge. The dogma of eternal punishment rests upon passages in the New Testament. This infamous belief subverts every idea of justice. Around the angel of immortality the church has coiled this serpent. A finite being can neither commit an infinite sin, nor a sin against the infinite. A being of infinite goodness and wisdom has no right, according to the human standard of justice, to create any being destined to suffer eternal pain. A being of infinite wisdom would not create a failure, and surely a man destined to everlasting agony is not a success. How long, according to the universal benevolence of the New Testament, can a man be reasonably punished in the next world for failing to believe something unreasonable in this? Can it be possible that any punishment can endure forever? Suppose that every flake of snow that ever fell was a figure nine, and that the first flake was multiplied by the second, and that product by the third, and so on to the last flake. And then suppose that this total should be multiplied by every drop of rain that ever fell, calling each drop a figure nine, and that total by each blade of grass that ever helped to weave a carpet for the earth, calling each blade a figure nine, and that again by every grain of sand on every shore, so that the grand total would make a line of nine so long that it would require millions upon millions of years for light, traveling at the rate of 185,000 miles per second to reach the end. And suppose, further, that each unit in this almost infinite total stood for billions of ages, still that vast and almost endless time, measured by all the years beyond, is as one flake, one drop, one leaf, one blade, one grain, compared with all the flakes, and drops, and leaves, and blades, and grains. Upon love's breast the church has placed the eternal ASP. And yet, in the same book in which is taught this most infamous of doctrines, we are assured that the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. So far as we know, man is the author of all books. If a book had been found on the earth by the first man, he might have regarded it as the work of God. But as men were here good while before any books were found, and as man has produced a great many books, the probability is that the Bible is no exception. Most nations, at the time the Old Testament was written, believed in slavery, polygamy, wars of extermination, and religious persecution, and it is not wonderful that the book contained nothing contrary to such belief. The fact that it was in exact accord with the morality of its time proves that it was not the product of any being superior to man. The inspired writers upheld or established slavery, countenanced polygamy, commanded wars of extermination, and ordered the slaughter of women and babes. In these respects they were precisely like the uninspired savages by whom they were surrounded. They also taught and commanded religious persecution as a duty, and visited the most trivial offenses with the punishment of death. In these particulars they were in exact accord with their barbarian neighbors. They were utterly ignorant of geology and astronomy, and knew no more of what had happened than of what would happen, and, so far as accuracy is concerned, their history and prophecy were about equal. In other words, they were just as ignorant as those who lived and died in nature's night. Does any Christian believe that if God were to write a book now, he would uphold the crimes commanded in the Old Testament? Has Jehovah improved? Has infinite mercy become more merciful? Has infinite wisdom intellectually advanced? 
Will any one claim that the passages upholding slavery have liberated mankind, that we are indebted for our modern homes to the texts that made polygamy a virtue, or that religious liberty found its soil, its light, and rain, in the infamous verse wherein the husband is commanded to stone to death the wife for worshipping an unknown god? The usual answer to these objections is that no country has ever been civilized without the Bible. The Jews were the only people to whom Jehovah made his will directly known, the only people who had the Old Testament. Other nations were utterly neglected by their Creator. Yet, such was the effect of the Old Testament on the Jews, that they crucified a kind, loving, and perfectly innocent man. They could not have done much worse without a Bible. In the crucifixion of Christ, they followed the teachings of his Father. If, as it is now alleged by the theologians, no nation can be civilized without a Bible, certainly God must have known the fact six thousand years ago, as well as the theologians know it now. Why did he not furnish every nation with a Bible? As to the Old Testament, I insist that all the bad passages were written by men, that those passages were not inspired. I insist that a being of infinite goodness never commanded man to enslave his fellow man, never told a mother to sell her babe, never established polygamy, never ordered one nation to exterminate another, and never told a husband to kill his wife because she suggested the worshipping of some other god. I also insist that the Old Testament would be a much better book with all of these passages left out, and whatever may be said of the rest— the passages to which attention has been drawn can with vastly more propriety be attributed to a devil than to a god. Take from the New Testament all passages upholding the idea that belief is necessary to salvation, that Christ was offered as an atonement for the sins of the world, that the punishment of the human soul will go on forever, that heaven is the reward of faith, and hell the penalty of honest investigation. Take from it all miraculous stories, and I admit that all the good passages are true. If they are true, it makes no difference whether they are inspired or not. Inspiration is only necessary to give authority to that which is repugnant to human reason. Only that which never happened needs to be substantiated by miracles. The universe is natural. The church must cease to insist that the passages upholding the institutions of savage men were inspired of God. The dogma of the atonement must be abandoned. Good deeds must take the place of faith. The savagery of eternal punishment must be renounced. Credulity is not a virtue, and investigation is not a crime. Miracles are the children of mendacity. Nothing can be more wonderful than the majestic, unbroken, sublime, and eternal procession of causes and effects. Reason must be the final arbiter. Inspired books attested by miracles cannot stand against a demonstrated fact. A religion that does not command the respect of the greatest minds will in a little while, excite the mockery of all. Every civilized man believes in the liberty of thought. Is it possible that God is intolerant? Is an act infamous in man one of the virtues of the deity? Could there be progress in heaven without intellectual liberty? Is the freedom of the future to exist only in perdition? Is it not, after all, barely possible that a man acting like Christ can be saved? Is a man to be eternally rewarded for believing according to evidence? without evidence, or against evidence? Are we to be saved because we are good, or because another was virtuous? Is credulity to be winged and crowned, while honest doubt is chained and a damned? Do not misunderstand me. My position is that the cruel passages in the Old Testament are not inspired, that slavery, polygamy, 
wars of extermination, and religious persecution, always have been, are, and forever will be, abhorred and cursed by the honest, the virtuous, and the loving, that the innocent cannot justly suffer for the guilty, and that vicarious vice and vicarious virtue are equally absurd. That eternal punishment is eternal revenge, that only the natural can happen, that miracles prove the dishonesty of the few and the credulity of the many, and that, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, salvation does not depend upon belief, nor the atonement, nor a second birth, but that these gospel are in exact harmony with the declaration of the great Persian. Taking the first footstep with the good thought, the second with the good word, and the third with the good deed, I entered paradise. The dogmas of the past no longer reach the level of the highest thought, nor satisfy the hunger of the heart. While dusty faiths, embalmed and sepulchred in ancient texts, remain the same, the sympathies of men enlarge. The brain no longer kills its young. The happy lips give liberty to honest thoughts. The mental firmament expands and lifts. The broken clouds drift by. The hideous dreams, the foul, misshapen children of the monstrous night, dissolve and fade. 